This week's Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by DigiCert. DigiCert is the world's premier high-assurance digital certificate provider, simplifying SSL, TLS, and PKI, and providing identity, authentication, and encryption solutions for the web and the Internet of Things. Check them out at digicert.com. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 216. Signing is going to be an event that says, yeah, we're attesting to all of those processes and quality to say this thing can actually be deployed and, and, and it should go out on the network. But then on the back end of it, people don't usually think of this, right? If somebody breaches that deployment and goes and changes a config file or something like this, you're breaking that signature. And now, you know, you can be monitoring for the, the signature of that thing that is deployed to say, only allow it to run if it is uh, in the state that we signed it at. We spend a lot of time talking about software supply chain security these days, but what does it mean? At the 10,000 foot level, I guess it means don't be the next solar winds. That is, don't let a nation state actor infiltrate your software build process and insert a backdoor into your product that then gets distributed to thousands of your customers. But practically, what are we talking about when we talk about securing the software supply chain? Increasingly, we're talking about securing the software code itself, making sure that what is written by our developers is actually what goes into a software build and then gets distributed to customers. Digital code signing, the use of digital encryption to sign submitted code, is one way to do that. Use of code signing is on the rise, but is digital code signing enough? In this episode of the podcast, we're joined by Brian Trupek, the Senior Vice President of Product at DigiCert, to talk about the growing use of digital code signing within development organizations. Brian and I talk about the changes to tooling, process, and staff that DevOps organizations need to embrace to make code signing work and shore up the security of their software supply chain. I'm Brian Trupek, Senior Vice President of Product at DigiCert. Brian, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. Hey, thanks. It's a first time caller, long time listener, right? <laughs> <laughs> we always love hearing that. There's been so much that's happened since the beginning of the year from a from a cybersecurity standpoint, and a lot of it raises really important questions. Obviously, there was the Solar Winds hack at the end of 2020, and then uh, subsequently there was the the mass hack of Microsoft Exchange, and then we had the of course Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. So the the cybersecurity stories have been coming you know, hot and heavy. And in the midst of all that, President Biden issued a new executive order on cybersecurity for the federal government and federal government contractors. It's a really interesting document. And and so I wanted to go over it with you because I think this this notion of secure identity is really central to it. One of the one of the concepts that the federal government has now really embraced is this notion of zero trust architecture, or some people call it zero trust networking, as kind of the approved architecture for now US federal agencies and and federal contractors who work with those agencies. And as you guys know, that's a really big, that's a lot of companies. <laughs> yeah, a big shift. And a lot and a lot of seats. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, I think at the, the start of it, Zero Trust is is fascinating. Coming from a PKI background where we inherently have zero trust of anybody, zero trust kind of coming together and saying, hey, you know, user identity, machine identity are, are very important things for you to access this network. And 
no longer are you going to be you know accessing this network merely because you have a proper VPN connection. There needs to be some enforcement that that device, that user, whatever it is, is acceptable into this network. It's really kind of at the ethos of, of the stuff we've been building and, and seeing other vendors um, really embrace the zero trust from the networking hardware down to everything in that infrastructure to enable that to actually work. It's so good from a security posture because you you know you think about what we've been doing and it's it's almost crazy to think that we did allow people with like you know way back i'm thinking you know five years ago people could come into a vpn with a username and password and then their device was trusted and they're on the network and they're privileged in their access to corporate resources and and go do what they want and how many hacks did we see that you know came came around from something like that so i, I do think it's just such a good model for um, just network access period or even just secure HTTP. I mean, I, I remember when it was a big, <laughs> like there was this big thing about like, you know, websites should really be using HTTPS. Like, you know, we should stop just sending data in the clear over the, over the web. But it was like, yeah. and it took, it took some, some folks to, you know, show really how, how exposed your data was for there to be this sort of like, oh yeah, well, we should, we should just have HTTPS by default. But that was like a conversation that we had and it wasn't that long ago. It was maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it, there's probably a whole nother podcast about my misguided youth and Wi-Fi networks that we can talk about. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk yeah. about your misguided youth. That sounds like an interesting <laughs> topic. You know, I think one of the things going on right now, obviously across industries, is this just phenomena of digital transformation, which means a lot of different things. But I think the base definition is, you know, embrace of cloud-based computing, cloud-based applications and, and data, physical assets that you used to own, these really kind of deperimeterized IT environments where you've got, you know, home users, remote users, all kind of collaborating and definitely a lot more engagement interaction with third parties, you know, outsourced, you know, third party platforms, third party and, you know, open source code or proprietary code. You know, from the perspective of a company like Digicert, which is is working with companies both to secure legacy IT investments and also some of these new services, you know, what does that what does that really mean? I mean, what what how is digital transformation kind of impacting the work that you and, and Digicert do with its customers? Yeah, I mean, I think that change in security perimeter is something I often talk about because it, it is such a dramatic shift. As customers are, or, or companies are shifting and starting to use cloud resources. And, and that could mean, you know, hey, we're, we're just executing some application in that cloud. That could mean we're just storing data in that cloud. That could mean that we're deploying custom applications that are doing data storage and doing it across five different Amazon regions or whatever, right? There's varying degrees of complexity um, as people start using things in the cloud uh, as one aspect of the kind of data center perimeter. And then the kind of physical or the, the network access perimeter, probably one of the best examples, right? I'll give you a great example is um, in the 5G space, as we talk with the telecommunications companies, they're living this right now in such an extreme way. They have these older last gen, right, 4G uh, and below networks that basically the, the security model, the access model to those resources was based on physical security. It was based on this is our building, our network. Our co, you know, our our center, our switching center, whatever, and you need to be an employee to gain access to that building and that network and those servers and the fiber is all ours, right? And so when you have that kind of security perimeter, you can make decisions about how you secure devices and authenticate things and provide identity 
that are not going to work when all of a sudden now in the 5G spec, those same telcos can deploy assets and resources on multi-tenant clouds. They can deploy across AWS regions or Azure regions or whoever, uh, and they could load balance capacity and send it out while trying to you know, adhere to things like lawful intercept and some of the legal guidelines and the stuff that they need to do to operate uh, their business. That change in that perimeter for them uh, is a kind of a dramatic description of what I think a lot of companies see in, in a smaller way, right? This switch from something I control wholly and I can air quotes trust, I can, I can define what I think is trusted around this to, well, now I'm using all these other kinds of resources and people have access to it from a variety of different ways. And the, the way I need to identify people and the way trust is going to work to access that, to control that, to deploy that, to manage that is going to be very different. I should note as well that that you wrote a, an opinion piece on this, staying secure through the 5G transition for Security Ledger, I think back in October. So verbal hyperlink back yeah. there to your story. <laughs> Space I follow. Great example, right? Because that's exactly what you're talking about. These companies in a smaller way, right? Like it was a huge operation, but you know, taking that perimeter and changing it, right? That, that, that is changing so much for these people. And there's so many things they need to address. So I, I think one of the other really compelling things for companies that get in, into the cloud is some of the newer things you can do there, right? Like there's machine learning, AI, right, built into these cloud environments, and they're buckling these into systems that they're doing, whether it's, you know, uh, around insurance, uh, you know, clause estimation, or, you know, whatever their business is, they're making use of these resources they couldn't possibly get. So there's also this not just I want to get rid of my data center, right? There's obviously economic uh, benefits potentially to doing those things. But there's also this lure of, man, there's greater technology and capacity of things that I could never deploy or deal with. And I don't have the expertise, but I can gain access to that to help accelerate my business. And I think that's really attractive to people too. So kind of help me connect the dots here, Brian. So on the on the one hand, as you just said very eloquently, digital transformation is affecting every organization. It, it is a huge transition from traditional IT environments, assets, physical assets to what we're seeing now, uh, increasingly cloud-based, virtual. And on the other hand, there is this prerogative now for zero trust for organizations to really get a a grip on particularly, you know, identities, who their users and uh, who, who they're who they're monitoring and managing, what they're monitoring and managing, you know, the the IT assets and applications and data, and to really put some some strict controls around those, and also do some really you know robust monitoring and detection around that. You know, this is a, zero trust is really the notion that you know your your environment is already compromised or or certainly is certain to be, and therefore you have to operate as if. A compromise is, is always happening in the background and, and still maintain security. So connect the dots for me between digital transformation and zero trust. Like what what is the enabling technology to be able to both achieve, you know, embrace digital transformation and then also achieve this concept of zero trust where, you know, you're not just one huge breach away from, you know, being out of business. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think at the the core of it is is kind of limiting scope is maybe what I would define it as best, right? Like if you have now um, a network and access to a network that is going to be defined by um, you know pretty much explicit like access controls, right? Identity based access controls for whatever that is, that machine, that person, uh, the device uh, to come onto that network. Ideally, you're boarding that into your environment in in a way that 
you haven't just blindly given out those identities, <laughs> right? So you're, you're not just saying, oh, hey, you, I, I think who you are, come onto my network and things should be fine. I, I think the other piece of it kind of to your enabling technologies per, uh, question is, you know, you've identified some device because you've also done something to uh, attempt to control and like you said, monitor and maintain that device or, or that user's device or, or whatever machine may be. That can mean that, you know, now I'm ensuring that those endpoints are being managed somehow, uh, you know, UEM type stuff or, or AV and malware and the different assemblies of the security layers that we put on these machines, that it's now proving that it has some, you know, kind of minimally corporate acceptable policy around data protection to then earn that identity to now get onto the environment. I think that's kind of really view. It's not just, hey, hey, Paul, here's a cert, come access our network because I think you're great. No, it's like, let's make sure that those those machines are actually somehow meeting some minimal requirement level. And, and to your point, have the monitoring around them too, right? So it, it, as we know, things can get breached and there's unexpected stuff that can happen. It's probably just as important to understand when that happens. Right. Like, you know, so you have the monitoring on the networks, you have the monitoring on the devices, you have the things that will tell you, hey, there's likely a problem over here. That's super important, too. Right. You don't you don't want to be finding out once you've had, you know, six terabytes of data exfiltrated from your network. That's probably too late. Or the uh, FBI knocking on your door. And <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you think kind of the shift left and the focus on agile development is kind of in tension with this? concept of zero trust? Does building security in mean kind of slowing that process down a little bit? Not that you're going back to like waterfall development methodologies, but maybe just a little bit uh, less rapid and a little bit more careful development that includes, you know, just more attention to security and, you know, ownership and authorization. You know, many, many, many years ago, I worked with a, a professional services firm where we were a cost, custom software development shop. Uh, because it was too difficult for a lot of places to kind of say, hey, we've got this business problem and, and we need something custom because that doesn't exist. So go build it. And, you know, we were an, we were an agile shop very, very early on the edge of, of agile at that point and uh, doing these things. And what was interesting was, you know, agile is a component in my, my mind for helping you stay close, more closely tied to the business requirements for software uh, to adjust quickly rather than a, a fail safe for ensuring that you're delivering the exact software that somebody needs. And those are slightly different, but I think it's the reality of Agile is that you are releasing frequently, you are getting stakeholder buy-in frequently, uh, and you're ensuring that you're, you're working towards the value that they need. And, and you don't, the idea is you don't get too far off the track uh, building some crazy stuff that nobody ever needs and then check in at the end and they're like, what in the world is this? That is not at all what we wanted. You just wasted nine months, right? Like, so that component of accelerating software, I think is, is great and agile, but I think then there's like the, the systems and tools, right? That support that. And we've seen some great stuff in DevOps, right? Like even just on the, the developer side from the IDEs, the 
um, code intelligence stuff that you know kind of auto completes your code almost at this point, you know, which makes it more reliable code as well, right? Like you're you're getting higher quality code because you're not necessarily doing such dumb things uh, because your option sets are more limited and intelligent. And so there's things like that that are helping. And and then you know in that development process is also code scanning and code quality reviews. And uh, a lot of this is automated where you know you can go through source and find high risk things or you know passwords that are embedded or you know poor code coding practices, you know, memory leaks, all this kind of stuff. All of that kind of exists on that developer endpoint. And then as you get into like the DevOps kind of end of it, well now, hey, I've got something I've built. I need to test it. I need to deploy it at some point. It needs to be blessed and go to production and customers need to use it. And all the automation of the tooling around that is fantastic, right? We've got great workflows where we can pretty much have developers deploy, if you allow them to, directly into production. And that that's awesome. From the security perspective, I think there's maybe a, a delta, right? Because if you go full DevOps, you sure better have some automated tooling in there down to the developer endpoint and in the DevOps process to monitor that from a security perspective. And if you can't afford those tools, you probably should slow down a little bit <laughs> because you still need to ensure that you're doing some uh, secure things. And you know, I, I think that is is maybe the crux in there, right? Like we've built things that can help us move fast. And, and some of those are... Um, you know, commercial things that carry large price tags to, to have high degrees of accuracy. Some things are open source that do very well, but you still have some gaps you need to address and, and kind of everything in between. And so I think, you know, as you kind of look at how you bring that dev process forward, yeah, like security is a layer. It, it's a layered system and we need things that are ensuring code quality and ensuring security of developed code and, and then getting deeper if they're using crypto, proper key management, proper algorithm usage, right? All these things that are very esoteric that you could never expect a developer of, you know, some wearable to really like, why is that his world? Yeah. And then I'm deploying it. And you know, as I'm deploying it, I want my environment to be the same environment. We went through this at Digicert where you don't want to deploy something and, and test something in an environment that's different than where it's going to run. There's so many bugs. There's so many security vulnerabilities and things that could be detected early and that you circumvent by creating a deployment process local or into some staging system that's different that then can seep their way into production because you're not using the same environments. And I think in a true DevOps environment, if you're utilizing the same environment everywhere, you're inherently going to have more security because you're trying to quote unquote do things right from the onset as opposed to, well, it's just staging. Just open that up. But we don't need that here, whatever that thing is. <laughs> you know what I mean? This week's Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by Digicert. Digicert is the world's premier high-assurance digital certificate provider, simplifying SSL, TLS, and PKI, and providing identity, authentication, and encryption solutions for the web and the Internet of Things. Check them out at digicert.com. Uh, you know, the, the, the sort of cautionary tale around this, obviously, is the recent Solar Winds incident where you had a compromise in the build process, um, you know, a malicious code, a backdoor injected into a software update that was then signed and, and sent out to customers, um, thousands of them. What, what, um, what in your mind is the is the lesson of, of Solar Winds then uh, around, you know, for, for companies that either are software publishers like Solar Winds with their Orion product, or obviously the downstream customers of those about what they should be doing to hedge against that that type of uh, risk? I, I mean, I think it, it, it kind of boils down to 
some of the things that we just talked about here, right? Like I think at the looking at the solar winds thing and kind of the infrastructure, what happened there, if you get down to that developer um, laptop, let's say, and, and, and their environment of what they're doing, regardless of how that person is connecting to that source repository, you know, somebody who's working on that, do you have something in place that is going to ensure code quality, right? Catching bugs and preventing, you know, weird behaviors and stuff. Do you have something in place that can, you know, fix vulnerabilities that can compromise the app and, and ensure, you know, security best practices? And then can you make sure that the code also is not inc incurring tech debt as it moves forward, right? Like, um, you know, that the developer velocity can be maintained because there's not these crazy branches of code that maybe never get used, but can introduce compromise, right? The, all of these things kind of package up to threat vectors for that kind of attack. And, you know, those things can be done by process, right? Like back to insert people, do proper code reviews, you know, do app security reviews, things like this. It can be product, right? Where you can get open source or commercial things that will automate and, and provide those things, which still need a person to look at them generally, right? But to, to, to do that. And then what is the process for code to actually make its way into a repository? right? Like, do, do you have integrated in your process, those code reviews are taking place before a commit is accepted, right? Before a merge happens? Do you have to pass certain automated tests and, you know, app security tests and code quality tests and stuff before it can merge? Those are big questions, but things people, you know, need to get in place. Now you can kind of at least say this code has gone through some modicum of quality review, security review, that we can say it's acceptable to come in or acceptable to come into review, maybe to, to get into urge. And now, you know, there's things where you can do signed check-ins as well, right? So I can sign like if in GitHub, I can uh, use that identity back to zero trust, back to the identity. I can use the identity of that developer and sign that check-in into um, uh, GitHub. So now I have an audit trail if something does go malicious and wrong and know exactly where that came from. And then you know, let's look a little further down the line. Now I have this software and uh, I, I get to the point where I do want to deploy this and, and this is going into production. I mean, code these days, especially in a multi-tenant cloud environment, a private cloud environment, or however somebody's running it, should absolutely be code signed, right? Whether it's a, a full Docker container that is signed or, you know, independent binaries, you know, that's up to how they deploy it and what they're doing. But the idea is to ensure the integrity of that thing that's running um, because signing is going to be an event that says, yeah, we're attesting to all of those processes and quality to say this thing can actually be deployed and, and, and it should go out on the network. We've, we've checked whatever our list is and it's out there. But then on the back end of it, people don't usually think of this. If that thing gets um, changed, right? If somebody breaches that deployment and goes and changes a config file or something like this, you're breaking that signature. And now, you know, you can be monitoring for the, the signature of that thing that is deployed to say, only allow it to run if it is uh, in the state that we signed it at, right? And, and to prevent things from, from that threat factor. And then the lastly, I think, is as code kind of hits that crossing that, that finish line of getting to deployment, you know, you want to go agile, like we we're talking about earlier, you kind of want to go agile, you want to let that developer um, or that team deploy things into production in, in certain environments going through whatever your approval process is. But what we've seen is, I think, a good shift uh, with a lot of companies who are security minded to saying they want to go to quorum based deployment. And so they have checks in the system to say, 
you know, we followed whatever those things are that I just talked about. And we, we went through our checklist of, of all the different things, manual or, or automated or whatever. And, and here's the, the score and the human version of what, uh, what we think about that. Archive that with our process for our audit trail for deployment. But now, you know, Paul, your manager and, you know, somebody else in the organization need to approve your ability to, you know, sign that code and push that out to production. And you have a quorum that are reviewing those things that can push that out. And, and those can be automated. It sounds heavy handed, right? But it, it literally can can be mostly automated and distributed to people in a rapid way for them to review and understand what's happening. But it gives another one of those checkpoints for what is the quality of, of what's being deployed and who knows about it? And can I monitor that through its life to ensure integrity? And DigiCert as a product that does this, a secure software manager, could, could you just talk about, like, let's just take the SolarWinds Orion as an example. If there were these processes at each stage, and, and we don't actually know what the internal processes of SolarWinds were, but just hypothetically, how do you prevent the sort of, you know, last minute injection of a backdoor into a software update? How does this process make it much harder to, to pull off that type of an attack? Two pieces here. The things I just talked about, right? There's a, a multi-layered approach, I think, would give them a really, really good chance of fighting against the attack vector you just described, right? Like it, it's all of those things in place as a process for the holistic kind of security view that that's going to uh, allow somebody uh, to have a fighting chance against that. I think specifically with uh, like DigiCert Secure Software Manager product, what it has done is it's reduced the barriers of difficulty for interacting with these signing processes and the, the various algorithm implementations and, and specifically access to the signing keys and key management functions uh, for who can attest to that software from your company. You know, we've built in these integrations into the IDEs, into the DevOps tools, right? So from the developer workflow or whoever's deploying it, whether it's a developer or some SRE team or whatever, they don't have to change what they're doing per se. We integrate directly into the tool set that they use. But the difference is instead of them signing, uh, or the difference is instead of them uh, deploying unsigned code in some staging environment uh, because it was too difficult to do all the signing processes and key management. And gosh, I don't want to do that. I'm a developer. I want to go quick. It's now done transparently for them. And so now hey, they've got an environment that is properly signed and is properly managed, whether it's running locally, whether it's running in staging or you know, put deployed out into the cloud, it has the exact same security configurations uh, from that aspect of the system, which like we just talked about, ensures that there's not those changes, there's not those risks in the environment that in introduce vectors. And then lastly, that the, the signing operation, as you say, hey, let's go put this thing into production, we do implement that, that quorum-based approach and, and allow customers to optionally use that and say, yeah, you know, through the whole dev lifecycle, have at it, go do your things, make sure they're signed, we're going to manage your keys and have appropriate audit trails, and, and we'll know who's doing what and where it's happening. But man, when that thing's going to production, we need, you know, two of three or N of M to say... Yeah, we went through our checklist, our process, and go ahead and do that. And and, and we we help people, you know, cross that line and, and just make it super integrated and super easy for them to do that. A final question. I mean, the, one of the other kind of recommendations or mandates, I guess, in the executive order was for federal agencies and 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 software companies, uh, contractors that work with the federal government, and federal agencies to create or issue software bill of materials uh, for their products. Um, basically lists of the components that are in a software application or 
or product, it, you know, version numbers and so on. I kind of think of this like the Takata airbags, right? Like when that whole thing happened, you know, automakers could could basically look and say, well, we know exactly what cars have these versions of the airbags in them and we can replace those, right? So, but we, in software, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit more of the sausage factory model uh, <laughs> um, or it has been. I, this is kind of an effort to move away from that, right, to, to something. So, you know, this is something that DigiCert has done on its own and, and actually gets asked about by obviously given the, the secure, you know, the sensitive nature of the work that you do with companies, you know, you get asked about stuff like this. But just talk about this SBOM software bill of materials concept and how it works at DigiCert and what you see happening with that uh, going forward. Yeah. And, and we have gone through that. You're right. And I think the reasoning that you know, we went through it as interesting. We, you know, we are an organization that has to adhere to several different compliance and regulatory programs in order to operate and provide these identities and, and trust systems to whatever it is, whether it's an IoT infrastructure or public trust to web browsers or whatever. There's things we have to do to, to make that happen. And in that, associated, you know, audits of our environments and our processes and all this stuff to make sure we're actually doing what we say we do and and uh, not introducing risk for companies' trust. And in that process is intr- kind of curiously the um, uh, a whole a whole piece where you you describe what you've been deploying and this has been happening for gosh, probably at least 12 Maybe maybe more years, uh, twelve years is where my memory fails me. But I remember going back back about that far. You know, the auditors would say, "Well, we want to know everything that is related to crypto in your environment, and where did that come from?" And as you saw, open source software start to introduce, you know, kind of cryptographic algorithms and implementations of of varying things, uh, and you start to then see other products rely on those implementations, and you know, probably three, four core implementations that are relied upon by thousands and thousands of things. You know, we had to go through very manual processes to um, initially to generate, hey, this is where the crypto came from, right? Like if we didn't write that piece of crypto, but we're relying on upon something. Thing. This is where it came from, and, and and this is kind of the audit trail and history of that. And I think it's fascinating because it's one aspect of security. But as you unpack all of this into the executive order and the the bill of, of materials kind of mandate in there, you know, to me that's that's really aligns with like things that we see in the IoT space. And I those those guys have really you know they have had um, challenges as we're all aware in IoT with breaches and, and different kind of different errors that have happened that have allowed systems to be compromised or other systems to be piggybacked and compromised. You know, a lot of that goes down to, well, what's on that device, right? Like, and and it could be what's what's the software, what's the open source software you're relying upon, but also what, like what chips and, and a lot of chips today that get embedded in devices come with software already baked on them. And what's the software on that chip? And is it open? source and where did it come from? And so I, I think it's an extreme uh, example, but wi- widely prevalent in the IoT industries of, of how do you track and manage all that stuff? And, and you know, now as you kind of sync this up into this executive order, I think it's, it's a wonderful thing because the more that we can encourage, especially in the IoT space, the ability to say, I know what's on there. And when I talk to customers, I think the important part is not only knowing what's on there, Paul, but when a breach occurs in something, oh, hey, I heard there's something in Wolf SSL that uh, allows 
a side channel attack or something, the ability that I can go to some system or something in my infrastructure and say, am I using Wolf SSL version .0234 or whatever? And I can see now, oh, that's deployed out on you know 50,000 assets that are on customer networks because it's an IoT device. And what's my remediation strategy, right? We, we have such a kind of a, a, a naive approach, I would say, in the IoT space that that sounds very simple, what I just said, but it's surprisingly difficult for customers to be able to do something like that and answer those questions, let alone remediate it. And I think that first step is answering. Yeah, I mean, we saw that happen with Solar Winds, where there were many companies that were like, oh, you know, we're, we're not impacted by this. And then we had to turn around and be like, oh, actually, we are, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. And you exactly. saw it with uh, Heartbleed, you know, and you saw it going back many years with, with SQL Slammer, you know, where, you know, there were implementations of SQL Server that, were in Microsoft products that, you know, maybe were running on desktops that people didn't realize there was SQL Server code in there. You know, final point or question is, you know, just as you pointed out around open source, because so much of, you know, modern application development is relying on open source. And yet, you know, so many of these projects, even critical, you know, libraries and components are, are single developer projects or, or, you know, small community developers, side projects kind of working on it in their basement highly vulnerable to um, to compromise of various sorts, you know, either uh, malicious contributions or just, you know, inadvertent errors. And that's that's kind of a boil the ocean problem as I look at it. It's, just, it's such a huge space. How do you impose order and control? You know, if you're the federal government, you've got, you know, you're writing checks to people, you can you can lay down the law. But for for open source, it's, it's much harder, right? It really is. Yeah, there's yeah, and I think in in that regard, it's interesting some of the moves that we've seen with like GitHub, where they're doing code scanning and showing people vulnerabilities of check code like automatically. I'd love to see that sort of stuff deepen, right? Because to your point, the single developer he doesn't have the time or necessarily expertise to do all those things. But if we can build some of that and still encourage smart contributors to create something that's widely usable, let's do that. But let's give them a little safety net, you know. Hey, Brian Drewback, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. It was great, uh, great having you on. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time. We will do this again. A absolutely. Love to. Brian Drewback is the Senior Vice President of Products at DigiCert. He was here to talk to us about digital code signing and securing the software supply chain. This week's Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by DigiCert. DigiCert is the world's premier high-assurance digital certificate provider, simplifying SSL, TLS, and PKI, and providing identity, authentication, and encryption solutions for the web and the Internet of Things. Check them out at digicert.com.